Welcome to Breast Cancer Update. This is medical oncologist Dr. Neil Love. Later on in the program, you'll hear more from these two women who received adjuvant systemic therapy for node-positive breast cancer. But first, we visit three medical oncologists to explore clinical decision-making in the adjuvant and metastatic settings. To begin, Dr. Lisa Carey discusses management of the patient with newly diagnosed metastatic breast cancer. Unfortunately, here in North Carolina, we do see about 5 to 10% of our patients are presenting stage 4s, which is, of course, a very difficult circumstance because these are women who were fine as far as they knew, and then all of a sudden they not only are catapulted into a cancer diagnosis, but they're catapulted into a terminal disease status with their cancer diagnosis. And it's a particularly difficult psychological place to be, and certainly one that we have in our new breast cancer clinic. We have a social worker who serves as a psychologist for these patients and really addresses some of the psychosocial issues, because frankly, it's impossible for these patients. Anybody, it doesn't matter how strong a person they are when they start, this is a very difficult thing for them to manage. It's difficult also for not just the usual psychosocial issues. I mean, these are women, many of our patients are used to being the caregivers. So they're used to being everyone else's safety net. And now all of a sudden they have to come into a situation where they need other people to help them. And it's very hard for some of my patients to learn to ask for help because it's really a reversal of their traditional role. In addition, the therapeutic implications are really hard sometimes for them to kind of get a handle on up front. For example, if a woman comes to my clinic and she has a node-positive breast cancer and some symptoms, and I say to her the importance of staging studies, and she wants to know why is it important that we get a CAT scan and a bone scan. I mean, she understands that it is, but the reality is that how I treat her disease is totally different if she has a high-risk node-positive breast cancer, at which point she will be part of our multimodality, aggressive treatment using lots of agents paradigm, where basically we say, listen, you're going to be with us a lot. We're going to do lots of therapy. The surgeon, the radiation doc, and I are going to work hand-in-hand. And it may be hard for you, but we're going to ask you to invest six months or a year or so of your life in us. And the hope is that then you will be a survivor and without evidence of recurrence and free of disease for the rest of your life versus a diagnosis of stage four disease, at which point the surgeon typically is not involved unless we decide that there's a benefit to a local approach. The surgeon and the radiation doctor are usually not involved. And I take a far more palliative approach to therapy and I don't use multiple chemotherapy drugs. And I try to really choose drugs that are less likely to have side effects in addition to working. So that idea of a potential palliative approach versus aggressive approach is sometimes very hard for patients to understand. And they get it after a little while, but if you can imagine, unless you're part of a medical community, these are pretty new concepts and very frightening ones. How do you analyze the clinical factors to come up with a treatment plan for a patient with newly diagnosed metastatic disease? The most important things to me for the newly diagnosed metastatic patient are first, I actually am a stickler for confirming the diagnosis histologically, so getting a sample of tissue. And I can tell you, again, if you talk to an oncologist who has a 1,000 patients in their clinic, if the diagnosis of metastatic disease, and frequently we get x-ray reports that say, you know, lung nodule consistent with metastatic disease, 
it's wrong. It simply isn't what it says is. And even if you ask the radiologist, they'll say, well, this is with 90% certainty, but that means one in 10 chances that it's something else. And that would drastically change the treatment. So I'm a bit of a stickler for getting a tissue confirmation of metastatic disease as often as is possible. And I think our new technologies like circulating tumor cells and things like that may make it a bit easier for us to do this. Right now, we still have to put a needle into an area. Once confirmed, the factors that I find the most relevant are the receptor status, hormone receptors and HER2, because that drives my treatment decisions, and the tumor bulk and whether the patient is symptomatic or not. In the asymptomatic patient, I typically use either just a targeted therapy or targeted therapy with a minimally toxic chemotherapy, or I just use hormones alone. If they have bony disease, a bisphosphonate is added. In a symptomatic patient, and the reason for that is that in an asymptomatic patient, I don't actually need the cancer to respond to the therapy. It would be okay if the cancer either responded or stabilized and stopped growing because the patient's not symptomatic. One of the worst things I can do is then make them symptomatic with the drugs I'm using. So in an asymptomatic patient, I try to take a more minimalist approach. In a symptomatic patient, I actually need them to respond to the drugs I'm giving. That's the circumstance where I actually contemplate using multi-chemotherapy regimens and a more aggressive approach because I needed to respond. Stabilization of disease is not adequate because I need to reverse the symptoms. So those two things, in a sense, tumor burden and symptoms and the receptor status, which helps me determine what kind of targeted approaches I can take are the two things that I think are the most important. Now, in the patient who has an ER-positive tumor and minimally symptomatic or asymptomatic, how do you sort through the choice of endocrine therapy and how do you factor in prior treatment? Well, so prior treatment helps me if they, for example, relapsed on adjuvant tamoxifen or adjuvant AI. If they relapse on one of those drugs, then they either were resistant to the drug from the beginning or they acquired resistance to it. And so I wouldn't choose that class of drug as the next modality. I'm actually not that convinced that in the absence of that kind of guidance in terms of what treatment they've had before, if they're previously, say, untreated and they're hormone receptor positive, or they were treated years ago and relapsed a considerable time later. I'm not as convinced that it makes a huge difference which one you choose first. My personal paradigm is to go with an aromatase inhibitor first in postmenopausal women and to use tamoxifen first and ablate the ovaries in a premenopausal woman. I think most people feel fairly comfortable that all of the things being equal, probably aromatase inhibitors are better than tamoxifen in postmenopausal women and probably lead with that. That's my clinical paradigm. I think in the metastatic setting, you are likely to go through all of your regimens at some point, and I'm not sure that order necessarily really matters. How would you compare the side effects, toxicity, and efficacy of fulvestrant versus an AI in postmenopausal women? You know, fulvestrant, I think, is a generally pretty well-tolerated drug. The biggest issue that I run into with fulvestrant is the injection site problems and patients who just don't want to get a shot. It's certainly easy. Some patients don't like to have to remember to take pills, so the idea of getting treated once a month is appealing to them. To be perfectly honest, endocrine therapies in general are very well tolerated, and you're talking about largely woman-to-woman differences. But globally speaking, all of these drugs are well tolerated. The AIs, I have to say, most of my patients tolerate AIs quite well. I do have patients who have dyspareunia or, you know, they have sexual dysfunction with AIs. 
And I do have patients who have myalgias. I find the myalgia arthralgia complaint is, in a small proportion of women, it is a very debilitating side effect and really necessitates stopping the drug. And it can range from just feeling achy to just feeling achy in the morning to feeling fine elsewhere, but having, you know, bad hand arthritis, which makes it difficult to operate a computer or write. So in general, I try things. Again, I usually start with an AI, but I think I will try any of them and then just tell the woman that if she doesn't tolerate it, we'll change to something else. Do you see this arthralgia, myalgia syndrome with tamoxifen and fulvestrin? Well, you know, fulvestrin, I seldom come to fulvestrin until a little bit later on in the course. So it's hard to, you know, I don't have an apples to apples comparison in terms of the first really aggressive endocrine therapy in first line setting. I have seen it with tamoxifen, certainly not at all as commonly. It was in my experience before we were more routinely using AIs when I used more tamoxifen in postmenopausal women was that it occasionally happened and it was a bit of a surprise to me, but you know, I had a few patients where it went away when I took them off the tamoxifen and if I restarted it, it would come back. And I think probably can occur with fulvestrin also. In terms of how much, I think from a quantitative standpoint, it's far more impressive with the AIs and probably is a symptom of profound estrogen depletion. You know, there have been some people who have compared it to a menopausal symptom just kind of on steroids, and I think that's probably somewhat accurate. And it may well be true, as some people have suggested, that if it was possible to ride it out, that eventually it would ameliorate. I think for some of my patients, that is true for the lower grade, grade one kind of myalgia arthralgias. Over time, they do tend to get better. And I think that's probably physiologic as opposed to them just getting used to it. On the other hand, it can be so debilitating that they simply aren't willing to put the investment of time in it. There's been a lot of controversy about whether to use a loading dose with fulvestrin. What are your thoughts on that? You know, I think the data is pretty compelling that you get to steady state better with a loading dose, and it's, the efficacy is probably better sooner, and the patients probably should tolerate it just fine. I think there have been some difficulties with getting it paid for when it's given, when there's a loading element to it. And some of the patients don't want to have intramuscular shots frequently because some of them find it very difficult. But I think it's actually probably the better way to go in reality. Where do you see clinical research heading in terms of study of endocrine therapy in the adjuvant setting? Fulvestrin, for example, has only been used in the metastatic setting. Do you see that being moved up? What are some of the strategies that you see being applied to these patients in the adjuvant setting? The strategies that are already being explored are the kind of optimization of the strategies for endocrine manipulation for premenopausal patients, which is really an open question right now. Fortunately, there are three large trials that are designed to answer the question of ovarian ablation as part of premenopausal management for ER-positive disease. Unfortunately, I hear that they're not accruing particularly well, so it may take us longer to answer it than we would like. I think that's a very big question. You know, for example, in a high-risk woman, what does ovarian ablation add to an aggressive chemotherapy and tamoxifen regimen that really hadn't been addressed in the earlier studies? I think the fulvestrin question is a very good one. As you know, there are some data, certainly preclinical data, that a combination of fulvestrin and an aromatase inhibitor may be a very useful way to go. I suspect that that question will be first asked in the metastatic setting and then moved into the adjuvant setting. Our usual paradigm is to test questions in the metastatic disease, look for a signal of efficacy, and then move it into the larger, far more expensive 
adjuvant setting where the patients, you may be buying them toxicity and you want to have some sense that you're going to get efficacy also before you do it. I think another question that is not being asked, but I would like to see asked, is of course the idea of combining ER-targeted therapy with HER2-targeted therapy in the ER-positive, HER2-positive disease. We've heard that there is clinical evidence of synergy, although I haven't actually seen the data yet, and I think that would be a terrific study in the adjuvant setting to get you potentially away from chemotherapy in just an ER-targeted or anti-estrogen-targeted approach plus HER2-targeted approach with trastuzumab or another HER2-directed therapy and see if you can get away from chemo in a subset of these women. Let's talk a little bit about the use of chemotherapy in metastatic disease, and we'll focus on HER2-negative patients, so either ER-positive or not. They've either had their hormones and now they're not responding to hormones, or they're ER-negative, so they're going to get chemotherapy. How have you approached those patients in the past, and how has your approach been affected, if at all, since the data came out on bevacizumab? So on to the second question first. The bevacizumab data, I actually have thought bevacizumab is a terrific drug, even when the first phase three study was reported. And in part, I think that was, we did participate in that phase three trial and had, you know, I personally have a patient who's still NED after receiving capecitabine bevacizumab. She had a complete response. I had to take her off drug for, she had a serious illness of an infectious type And I had to take her off of drug, and she was NED, and I kept telling her that whenever her disease came back, we would restart, at that point, capecitabine, because bevacizumab was not available, and she hasn't recurred yet, and it's been three years. Wow, where was the disease? It was cutaneous, actually. She had diffuse cutaneous disease that she had onchoros disease extended, you know, sort of around to her posterior axillary line, up to her neck and down onto her abdomen and cross midline. It was quite impressive cutaneous disease that had progressed through quite a number of previous therapies. That all went away when she got bevacizumab and capecitabine? It did, it did. It's one of those small miracles. You know, that's always the usual anecdotal experience, but in reality, we had a positive experience participating in that study, had patients who did quite well and had good responses and good tolerance of the drugs. And as you know, even though that was a third-line regimen, there was a doubling of the response rate. So again, in the patients that you're wanting to use a more aggressive combination regimen because you want response, you can get that from even a third-line chemotherapy bevacizumab combination. When the ECOG-2100 study was published, the first-line randomization of weekly paclitaxel with bevacizumab, with or without bevacizumab, came out with a compelling improvement in time-to-disease progression and later a small but real survival advantage you know, I think that changed the paradigm such that if I'm using a weekly paclitaxel regimen, I really do try to include bevacizumab. I think the patients in whom that is problematic are patients with hypertension because that is one of the side effects of bevacizumab. And we have traditionally screened for CNS disease, asymptomatic CNS disease, when we're considering using bevacizumab, which is not my clinical practice normally. I have done that for bevacizumab. In reality, that caution may be a little more than we need to do, but it was born out of a couple of fairly devastating clinical complications early in the development of bevacizumab, such that all of the studies required CNS screening. As you know, the glioblastoma study that was presented at ASCO suggested really quite strong evidence of efficacy of bevacizumab in primary brain tumors, 
which certainly raises the question of whether we might see the same thing in CNS metastases. Obviously, it hasn't been answered and should be answered in a clinical protocol, but I think that particular caution may be something that we're a little less aggressive with and we may actually pursue it therapeutically in the future. But if I'm going to use weekly paclitaxel, then I strongly consider including bevacizumab unless there's a contraindication to do so. How do you decide between using paclitaxel, bevacizumab, and other agents or schedules? If the patient has not received a taxane previously or had it more than 18 months or two years previously, I will go to a taxane first. How I choose which taxane, I think of sort of three types of taxanes as more or less equivalent. Weekly paclitaxel, Q3-week docetaxel, and Q3-week abraxane. And part of the decision-making about which one to choose depends on whether the patient is interested in coming once a week or whether coming, for example, a lot of my patients live far away and that's a pretty onerous schedule for them, at which point I put them on an every third week regimen. If I'm going to consider weekly paclitaxel, then I consider bevacizumab. The other drugs in combination with bevacizumab obviously haven't been studied to the extent of weekly paclitaxel. And I must say, of all those three, I use weekly paclitaxel more frequently than the other two. You know, I can use the bevacizumab with some assurance of synergy. I think abraxane is pretty well tolerated. I have seen a fair amount of neuropathy with it, which is largely reversible, but certainly exists. And that's a problem for my patients. It's been stated that the neuropathy with abraxane resolves quicker than with paclitaxel. Do you think that's the case? I think it probably is the case. The problem is you have to stop the drug for that to happen, which in the metastatic setting is an issue. What about the issue of the lack of need of premedications with napaclitaxel? To what extent do you view that as an advantage? You know, I think it is clearly an advantage, particularly since you're having to use the drug so frequently. For some patients, like diabetics, it's clearly a strong, you know, it's a compelling reason to go to the drug. There are also patients who simply don't tolerate steroids all that well. In patients who are on long-term paclitaxel therapy, I do tend to peel down these steroids a bit, but I do think that's an advantage without question. Do you have any sense in terms of anti-tumor effect of abraxane versus the other two taxanes? I don't. I think all three are better than every third week paclitaxel, and I there may well be efficacy differences among the three, but I don't know what they will be. How would you compare the side effects and toxicity to docetaxel in the metastatic setting to either abraxane or paclitaxel? You know, a little bit different. I don't use docetaxel as frequently because my impression is that the asthenia part of it is more prominent than for either of the other two drugs. And that's a side effect that I have a hard time with, my patients have a hard time with, and I can't ameliorate very well. I'm under the impression that more liberal use of growth factors, for reasons that aren't clear to me, may help with that, but I haven't personally tried it. Let's talk a little bit about the management of the patient with a HER2-positive tumor in the metastatic setting. And now that's starting to change a little bit because I guess we're seeing women who've had adjuvant trastuzumab. How do you approach the management of patients with a HER2-positive disease in the metastatic setting? Well, HER2-positive disease in the metastatic setting, again, you know, I sort of treat it like everything else. If they are hormone receptor positive and asymptomatic and relatively low disease burden, I tend to start with an endocrine therapy. But I have a pretty low threshold for adding trastuzumab to that. Again, if they have a low disease burden and are asymptomatic, I'll try it as a single agent. That's not the indication for it, but that's certainly something I've felt fairly comfortable with. And I've had some patients with 
fairly lengthy duration of disease control on single-agent trastuzumab. I have one patient who went five years before she progressed. In the other patients, I combine trastuzumab with chemo, and I personally like either weekly paclitaxel trastuzumab combination or the venerelbine trastuzumab combinations. I've found both of them to be well-tolerated. I can give them for a pretty long time, and they have good efficacy. My own observation, in my own clinic at least, the venerelbine trastuzumab combination I can give for a long time with a little bit of you know intermittent dosing of growth factors and prolonged disease control. Taxanes, the neuropathy has been more of an issue for those patients. But I also have had patients on and off for several years using those regimens. What about a patient who relapses shortly after receiving a year of adjuvant trastuzumab? My paradigm has been, of course, to start with a new drug. I mean, usually if they're relapsing within a year of adjuvant trastuzumab, they're usually relapsing within, you know, a year and a half or so of paclitaxel trastuzumab combination. So I've gone then to venerelbine trastuzumab is usually the first drug that I use for them, the first combination. Again, assuming if they're hormone receptor positive, I assume they're on an anti-estrogen sort of approach, and, you know, I might try an alternate anti-estrogen approach if that's the case. But in terms of HER2-directed therapy, I typically have combined with a non-cross-resistant chemotherapy and restarted the trastuzumab. Can you talk a little bit about the drug lapatinib and how you see that fitting into the management of metastatic HER2-positive disease? Right. So the clinical scenarios we've had, you know, in the past, the only HER2-directed therapy we've had available to us is trastuzumab. So it was either alone or in combination with various chemotherapy drugs. Now, lapatinib, which is an oral agent, and it targets HER2, and it also targets a growth factor receptor that is related to HER2, HER1, or the EGFR, has been shown to have efficacy. It works in patients who have HER2-positive disease who have progressed on trastuzumab. So lapatinib, the large phase three study of it, of course, was a comparison of chemotherapy alone with capecitabine or chemotherapy with lapatinib and showed a quite compelling improvement in progression-free survival in these patients who got lapatinib in addition to the chemotherapy. I think that drug is clearly going to become one of the things we can bring out, and I suspect it will be used as the first thing after progression on trastuzumab-based regimen. People will still continue to go to another chemotherapy and reintroduce trastuzumab, but it will give us two drugs instead of one as the HER2-targeted part of it, and I think it's going to be a terrific boon. The second element for that is there's certainly a rationale that one of the clinical problems we run into with trastuzumab is brain metastases, probably in part because the drug doesn't get into the CNS very effectively. It's big and bulky. The nature of lapatinib is a smaller drug, and it probably crosses the blood-brain barrier more effectively. There's reason to believe, for those reasons, we think that it may actually either prevent or treat brain metastases in the setting of HER2-positive disease. And there's some small amount of evidence, I'd call it modest evidence, of this being true in a small study of about 30 to 40 patients in whom two, you know, all of whom had progressed on trastuzumab-based regimens and who received lapatinib as a single agent. And they saw a response in two of them, a clear evidence of response and more subtle evidence of response in another, about 10 or so. So I think that's being tested in a far larger trial, but I think there may be clinical subsets in whom one drug may be preferable over another. And the separate part that hasn't been tested but will be tested is whether the two drugs together may be better than either one alone.
What are the side effects and toxicity seen with lapatinib, and how does that compare to Herceptin? They're pretty different. So lapatinib is pretty well tolerated. You see in the phase three study with capecitabine, there was a little more diarrhea. So it has more of the kind of side effects that we traditionally associate with the HER1 inhibitors like Erisa or gefitinib or erlotinib. So many of those drugs tend to give people a rash and GI symptoms. Lapatinib, its side effect profile is more akin to those than it is to trastuzumab where, you know, it's an infusional therapy, and many patients, the first time they got it, had infusion reactions. And then there's a cardiotoxicity question with trastuzumab, where pretty clearly trastuzumab is a cardiotoxic drug. It is probably mostly cardiotoxic in people who already have some damage to the heart from another thing like anthracyclines. But even by itself, there's certainly reason for concern. What hasn't been answered is whether that is a reversible or irreversible thing, but it certainly exists. Lapatinib, so far, the evidence is that it's a pretty safe drug from the standpoint of the heart, with a very big caveat here, and that is that most of the patients who have been assessed for this cardiotoxicity, most have already had previous therapies, many of which were toxic to the heart. So, for example, in that phase three study, those patients had received anthracyclines and they'd received trastuzumab. So they'd already been through what you might call a sort of cardiotoxicity stress test. So that's a selected population in that sense. So I think right now we don't seem to see a lot of trouble with the heart, but that's an open-ended question still, I'd say. Speaking of HER2-positive disease, can you talk a little bit about your approach to the use of trastuzumab in the adjuvant setting right now? Yeah, so like many people, I think of my adjuvant treatment options, I think first of the biology of the cancer in terms of what drugs I'd like to consider using in the patient and talking to the patient about. So any patient that has a HER2-positive breast cancer, I consider the use of trastuzumab. At this point in time, all of the studies that have been done using trastuzumab in the adjuvant setting were built upon a chemotherapy backbone, and so that is my paradigm also. For the higher-risk patients, I tend to use an anthracycline-taxane combination like ACTH that was used in several of the trials, and some of the patients that, for one reason or the other, ACTH is not an optimal combination. I have used the HERA-style combinations where I give the chemotherapy first and then I give trastuzumab afterward for a year. And I use a year for everybody. What do you tell patients who are going to receive a year of adjuvant trastuzumab in terms of the risk of cardiac damage? Well, I tell them that the paradigm that I use is a fairly conservative one, certainly much more than I do in the metastatic setting where I really don't do a lot of routine studies. I do a cardiac evaluation with a MUGA before they start chemo, if they get an anthracycline after the anthracycline, and then again before they start the adjuvant phase. And I do it every three months while they're getting therapy. If they have a drop in their EF, I stop the drug. Certainly if they drop their EF and have symptoms, then I usually don't restart it. But if they just drop their EF below 50, I'll stop it for a month and recheck and then see if their EF has recovered. And then we have a conversation and we might restart it or might not, depending on what the patient would like. We don't really know what the optimal duration is of adjuvant trastuzumab. So that's part of the complicating thing is I don't know at what point they've received the lion's share of the benefit of the drug. It's probably true that there is an optimal duration or maybe this just you keep getting more benefit as you go along. But all we know about now is one year. There was a suggestion from a very small study that just combined 
the drug with chemotherapy, the FinHER study, that nine weeks may give you a lot of benefit. But it was such a small study, it's intriguing, but certainly should be considered an interesting idea, but not standard of care at this time. The patient says to you, what's the chance of heart failure because of taking Herceptin? What number would you give them? 4% for the whole thing, if I include an anthracycline. You know, there are non-anthracycline regimens that I feel comfortable with in patients who I think of as high risk for having heart failure. So those, it's closer to 2%. If I don't include it with the chemotherapy, it's closer to 2%, as you know. 4% for the ACTH-type regimens where you have an anthracycline. You combine it with a taxane immediately after the anthracycline and thereafter for a year. What do we know about what happens to patients who do develop heart failure from trastuzumab? That question hasn't fully been answered. However, there were certainly some data from the original pivotal trials in the metastatic setting, and there's also some from the adjuvant trials, that the cardiotoxicity that you see during the drug actually seems to have a reversible component. This is a work in progress, definitely. But not only is there a suggestion from these trials where they're looking at the EFs coming as they go along and after the patients have come off therapy, there's also evidence that this was suggested by studies where they did you know, endomyocardial biopsies of patients receiving Herceptin. And it really does look like the characteristic appearance of the heart. I mean, there is damage to the heart from anthracyclines that is very characteristic. It's recognizable on electron micrographs. They see you know, very vacuoles, and they see damage to the myofibrils. And these are things, if you take somebody who's an expert at reading these sorts of things, they can look at a bunch of these and tell you which patient got doxorubicin and which one didn't, even if it was 10 years earlier. They don't see those changes when they look at patients receiving trastuzumab. So there's definitely a very intriguing suggestion that there's more than one type of chemotherapy-induced cardiac damage, and that trastuzumab may be in one category, and anthracyclines may be in another. And if we know that the damage that's caused by anthracyclines is irreversible, there may in fact be a totally different mechanism involved with trastuzumab, and it may in fact be reversible. That'll be something we'll have to figure out over time, though. I want to ask a little bit about the use of hormone therapy and management of the ER-positive patient. And one thing that's come up in terms of specifically the ER-positive node negative patients, particularly relevant to the use of chemotherapy, has been the Ocotype DX assay. Can you explain what that is and what your thoughts are about its clinical use? Sure. The Oncotype DX assay is, I think, a very interesting assay. It's part of our new sort of the genomics approach to cancer diagnosis and therapy. And that is that instead of asking questions of one biomarker at a time, ER or HER2, which can be very useful but sometimes isn't enough, the people who developed this test went to several hundred genes, about 250 genes, and they said, what are the genes that are most likely to be important in relapse in a ER-positive breast cancer in spite of tamoxifen? So they're really getting prognosis in a particular group of patients. They honed down using several different data sets that weren't actually all ER-positive and node-negative, but even so, they honed down on 16 genes that were particularly important in whether a patient relapsed or not. And then they went to a very large data set from an NSABP study and said, can we use the results of this gene test? It's not just one gene, not just two genes, but all 16 genes. And they created a mathematical formula to sort of weight them by how important they thought they would be in terms of prognosis that would give you a score. So this weighted average of these 16 genes gives a score that they called the recurrence score. 
when they applied that result, now so they took the primary tumors, so the original cancer, from a bunch of ER-positive, node-negative breast cancers who received tamoxifen, so all the patients had those characteristics, and they already knew whether they had relapsed or not. And they looked at what the mathematical test from the recurrence score, that score, how that compared to the likelihood of relapse in spite of tamoxifen in this group of patients. And what they found was if you had a low recurrence score, your likelihood of relapsing in spite of tamoxifen was less than 10%. So most of those patients were going to be fine. If you had a high recurrence score, about a third of them relapsed. So that score measured in the tumor at the time of diagnosis actually was very useful in predicting whether the patient relapsed or not. Now, the obvious question then is, what do you do with this information? You know, is that helpful? Does that just tell you uh, natural history, or can you intervene? And specifically, can you intervene with chemotherapy? And they've done some studies subsequent to that that I think answer that question quite nicely. They have looked to see whether the recurrence score helps predict the benefit of chemotherapy. And in fact, in a series of studies that they've done with the NSABP, specifically Soon Paik, who's a pathologist with the NSABP, they've done a lovely series of experiments that, to summarize them, suggest the following. The recurrence score is partly a prognostic score. It does tell you natural history. It also tells you about relative insensitivity to tamoxifen, meaning that the benefit of tamoxifen seems to be more in patients with the lower recurrence score and less in patients with the higher recurrence score. So part of their outcome in that original study may have been that they weren't that sensitive to tamoxifen. But can you supersede that by giving chemotherapy to these patients? And what they've also found is that the benefit of chemotherapy on top of tamoxifen seems to be greater in the higher recurrence score. So this is sort of a nice result because the higher recurrence score seem to be less likely to benefit from tamoxifen and more likely to benefit from chemotherapy. I think that's actually a very, very useful test. It is the kind of thing that I think can help a patient and a physician if the other clinical variables leave them on the fence about treatment decision-making. Now, there is a study going on right now that will help identify when in the middle group chemotherapy might be beneficial, and that's a randomized study where patients with low recurrence scores all get endocrine therapy and are followed. Patients with high recurrence scores get chemotherapy and tamoxifen and are followed. And those in sort of the middle group, which is a pretty broad group and it's designed to be almost half of the patients, are going to get randomized to just endocrine therapy alone or endocrine therapy with chemotherapy added. So they'll really get it what we call level one evidence for whether or not you can use this for chemotherapy decision-making in the middle group. I think for the higher group and the lower group, it's a little bit easier decision-making already. What are the clinical situations where you yourself use the Oncotype DXSA? I don't ever send it in patients who aren't ER positive and node negative. And within that group, you know, I really use it after I've met the patient and after I have a sense of whether... I think this test will help with decision-making. I never send it in HER2-positive breast cancers. And I don't send it in, you know, if I have a patient who says to me, there's no circumstance in which I wouldn't want to be aggressive with my cancer within medical reason, then I already know they're going to want to take chemotherapy, even for a 1% potential benefit. So there's no point in the test in that group. Conversely, some of my patients, particularly older patients, will say, you know what, unless you have a test that will tell me that I'm definitely going to benefit from chemotherapy, 
I'm not interested in it. And in that group, I also don't see any potential benefit for the test. It's not the kind of test that says yes or no, you're going to benefit. It's the kind of test that helps you, it adds information to what we already have in terms of risk stratification. So in a sense, it's sort of like adjuvant online. It just gives you more information about what their potential risk might be.